My guest today is Phineas Glover. He is head of ESG equity research for Asia Pacific at Credit Suites. And it's a job that didn't exist some 10 years ago. But today, he's a leading source of up-to-date information on the environmental and social issues that are having material financial impacts on companies. It's no longer just about earnings or profit margins. The world's biggest investors are now paying close attention to issues and themes beyond just the financials. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. I really enjoyed this one. Phineas explained what it is a sell-side research analyst actually does. And we got into the weeds about whether the term ESG has lost its meaning and how we can better assess the long-term prospects and impacts of publicly listed companies. We went deep into the financial models, but also the philosophy of sustainability. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Anyway, let's get into it. For all the show notes, jump onto my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for that because it helps more people find the show. All right, here's my conversation with Phineas Glover. Here we go. Phineas, thank you for coming on the show. Good to be here, John. Now, look, I always feel it's a lazy way to start an episode by asking someone to explain their role and the work they do. But I think in this case, it's useful because the simple fact that there's now a research position dedicated to ESG in major investment banks. And, and it really points to how far this field has progressed. So can you tell us a little about, about what you do? Yeah, sure, John. So, I mean, ultimately, at its core, it's really about research and, and investment research. So just in the same way as you know, a sector analyst would look at a stock, uh, but they would be trying to understand a very specific kind of granular view in terms of valuation, we'll be identifying themes that we think will, under different circumstances, impact a company from a valuation perspective as well, but coming at it from a more broader thematic perspective. And the range of different considerations is, you know, ever increasingly brought, you know, becoming broader, and the types of clients that we interact with is, is as well broadening out. Essentially, making the role slightly more broader in terms of the kinds of research we're focusing on. Well, that's it, and the nature of ESG in the way I tend to explain it is that it's it's simply more factors that an investor is taking into consideration that they're also considering environmental social and governance factors you know you mentioned that there are broader themes and more clients is that the main development then if i was to sort of paint a picture in terms of the sell side research and, and what we're seeing that probably puts it into context i think there was the growth in kind of big mega trend research where you know you're seeing these really impressive 100 200 page reports on things like climate change and they really gained a lot of traction in the market over a period at the other end of the spectrum you've got you know your kind of ESG ratings houses that are a bit more granular i think over time some of the criticism in the market of those big mega trend reports is it's become really a kind of problem statement you know, this is the problem statement, whether it's climate change, biodiversity loss, you know, plastic pollution. The clients are 
I guess, are kind of wishing to move that question to the next stage and to say, what next? How does this interact with different industries? The way we see our approach and the way I see my research is a lens to understand how ESG interacts with um, industry structural change. So I actually quite like a quote by Winston Churchill, I do mention it at times, which is, if you don't take change by the hand, it will take you by the throat. And so it sounds, <laughs> it does sound a bit aggressive, but the reality is here that we're no longer dealing with kind of very long shelf life issues where five years ago, you talk to a fund manager, there would be a degree of kind of equivocation, you know, that's all well and good. And that's very interesting. But come back to me when you think it's going to impact sectors and stocks, whether that's right or wrong is another matter. That was kind of the reality of the situation. I think what's fundamentally shifted is that those themes are really having such a big bearing on those fundamentals in terms of sectors and stocks. So the non-financial factors are, are very rapidly becoming financial. Yeah, and that's why I've never really liked this idea of non-financials. And in a way, it's kind of intangible. If you wanted to get deeper, you know, you've got intangible at the company level, and then you've got really kind of, I guess, more qualitative factors that are external to the company. And I often talk about how, you know, in any free society, law is essentially kind of a lagging indicator of societal expectations, right? And so in any free society, the nature of a company's relationship with all of its different stakeholders, its employees, communities, suppliers, you know, the regulator, those themes are constantly evolving and the expectations of those stakeholders are constantly evolving. And so companies that anticipate those shifts will be in a better position at the same time what is becoming an increasing focus within ESG is actually, in some cases, it doesn't matter how well you manage those stakeholders because you're in an industry that's structurally challenged or you've got like stranded assets or, you know, ultimately whole industries are shifting. You know, you can be good from a traditional ESG sense in terms of, you know, you manage your, fact, you know, your ESG issues well. But if you don't grasp the nettle on that structural change and your whole business model is at risk, essentially. Yeah, you mentioned this important to embrace change. And I think the concept of ESG is still evolving. And, and I spend a lot of my time defining terms with this spectrum from ESG to impact. But how do you sort of see the use of this term? You know, some people say, oh, look, you know, ESG is meaningless. The ESG funds have miners in them. And you've got to read the fine print along everything. You know, there are efforts to bring through norms and there are new frameworks. How do you see the usage of the term impact, and where we're heading? More generally. All of the concepts from ESG at one end to impact at the other, right? And, and the fact that ESG, some people use impact to, to cover the whole spectrum. You know, within industry, we tend to get a little bit more nuanced. But I just wonder, this concept of ESG at your level, at the public equities level, you know, you probably use this three-letter acronym all day, every day. How do you feel about it? Do you think it, it covers what you do? No. <laughs> It was an imperfect umbrella acronym, but actually worked very well at the time <laughs> to, to kind of get foster understanding more broadly across the industry. So, you know, it has become a catch-all and it has, for that reason, it's been both a positive and by virtue of its simplicity, also a negative in terms of degrees of misunderstanding around what we're, we're actually talking about in terms of ESG. I think from a stock level perspective, in terms of my role, securities research, I'll start there, but then obviously it broadens out in terms of product. I think that's the distinction we must always come back to. Am I using ESG as a lens to understand a company's prospects, uh, its opportunities and risks? 
or am I using ESG as a lens to categorize ESG products? And that's an important distinction. And a further conflation is obviously companies' actual reporting obligations <laughs> and, and the different, you know, sustainability, accounting standards board, et cetera, GRI, which again is a different thing. So in terms of securities research, I actually think of it in three different ways. I'll start with the second because I think it's where most of ESG research really sits. I see the classical lens of ESG in, in terms of you know, scrutinizing a company's business systems, its practices. An extension of that would be, you know, its momentum in managing those kind of what I would call more operational ESG issues as really about business resilience. Now, that's actually very important, but it's really a function of understanding management quality and the ability of that company to adapt. So if you're far behind when it comes to your environmental policy or targets or systems for measurement, et cetera, that is likely to be a proxy for potentially a management team that aren't looking beyond the horizon in terms of strategic risks. It exposes them to regulatory change if and when it happens in terms of readiness and investment in those systems and practices. It's really, in my view, a kind of more bottom-up view of resilience now, as I said, that is very important, but it generally speaks to risk. The bit that hasn't been done particularly well, in my view, but where the market is sort of gradually moving to is the assessment of kind of business model sustainability. And that's really the exposure to disruption. So you're going to boil that down into a simple example. If you're a plastic packaging company with 200 page sustainability report, You've invested in the right consultants. I don't want to sound too cynical. You know, <laughs> one of the big four has helped you with your sustainability report. You measure your impacts very well. You're talking the right talk. Still question marks over whether you're walking the, the, the walk. You're generally going to score pretty well from the likes of MSCI, Sustainalytics. And again, I'm exaggerating to make the point here, but you're going to be a AAA because you're generally, ostensibly, you know, you have the right systems in place to deal with those impacts you measure that i'm sure you're incrementally making some progress but you're missing <laughs> the 15 ton gorilla in the middle of the room which is what is the demand risk for your business model from selling plastic packaging and i don't think that's really captured and that requires a more detailed deep dive in terms of a scenario analysis of regulatory change a view of the value chain in terms of what are the FMCGs doing in terms of their plastic packaging targets? What's the actual substitutability of different packaging products within the portfolio? So what's that company's actual exposure to different packaging products that has high substitutability? In other words, there's a low cost of shifting with same utility value. All of those factors are much harder to systematize right? It's, it's harder to have a single product that has the right answer. But I think we'll see more and more movement towards those kinds of models where you will see a kind of systematizing of the kind of key top-down drivers of earnings risk. You know, I think that you, you could have a debate as to who is the right actor in the chain of financial intermediation, you know, within the marketplace, who's the right person to actually do that analysis. I think the sell side is particularly well positioned because of our coverage all the way from, you know, macroeconomic research to strategists, to sector, sector analysts, and then to ESG specialists. So I think that's 
we're relatively well positioned for that. And then finally, just to round it out, just business stewardship in a broader sense is, you know, your traditional corporate governance focus, but it goes beyond that in terms of your financial sustainability. So like if in number one bucket, you're facing major disruption, right? From policy change, shifting market environment for your products. What does that mean in terms of your transition capex? What is the cost of transitioning business? And do you actually have the financial sustainability to do that? Long-winded answer, but from a purely securities research perspective, I I don't really think of ESG. I, I kind of think of sustainable competitive advantage. And that's things like business model, exposure to disruption, your ability to adapt and your leadership quality. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really valuable insight. And, you know, I think that 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 really gets to the core of it at the company level. Well, I guess from the investor level, looking at the company, they really are asking for demanding more transparency, right? You know, it's no good mandating investor reporting if company data isn't available. So I wonder in some ways, are you saying then that, that, that that's less important because really you can, it doesn't matter what the company is making public, you can still view it, you can still view its, its business model, you can look at where its revenues are coming from, and you can sort of assess it from that third party approach? Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really good question because I think it demonstrates that it's not all company reporting, but company reporting serves an absolutely critical function. But if I'm talking about my clients and their kind of pursuit of alpha, how you can really differentiate yourself in the market in terms of your analysis. It's breaking the shackles from just being purely focused on what a company reports by way of its ESG data and actually kind of extending beyond that and just understanding those market trends and how they are going to interact with the business model. So I I just think you're at risk of having to sort of boil the ocean and, and tackle a whole plethora of like different ESG themes and you know so there are obviously challenges there but how you can use geospatial data to understand a company's exposure are other things that are quite you know interesting from that perspective as well just to give you like a a simple example like if you were to look at like a BHP or Rio large mining company some of the largest mining companies in the world in fact they disclose fairly well their water consumption at a very high level they disclose their water recycling and they'll provide information around you know, some of the things they're doing to improve that water efficiency. But from an investment perspective, what does that really tell me? It doesn't tell me anything about where the mines are, the water scarcity at particular assets, the worsening water scarcity in those locations, the profile of those assets in terms of ramping up production. So the disclosure there and the disclosure that will be required under SASB, you know, Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, will be, I want to know what your water consumption is and your water recycling. And that gives me an insight into, at a very, very high level, your water consumption over like revenue or your water consumption over a EBITDA or some other function that's weighted to your business and volume. From my perspective, that tells you very little really in terms of the actual business model risk. And that's where, you know, Areas like geospatial data become much more interesting because you can map those assets, you know, whether it's like, you know, 75% of the world's copper on their exposure to different levels of drought and water scarcity. You can map that to the asset level, which starts to give you a more granular view of that risk. 
And so I think investors will increasingly go down that road. And I know there'll be certain companies will be frustrated by that statement because, you know, they're investing loads of money and trying to improve their reporting. I'm just talking about two different functions. One is about alpha and the other is really about market practices. Definitely. And it's all complementary, right? And and it's layers upon layers. And I think in terms of, you know, the geospatial piece, it's always the the researchers like yourselves, you know, trying to push further and trying to have that value add and saying, you know, well, the companies are disclosing to this point, you know, we can take that further and we can get this data point and we can make, you know, take a position, right? And I mean, in that way, in terms of, you know, taking a position and opportunities and, and getting down to the pragmatic realities of investing, a theme like renewable energy has been an investment trend. It's been pushing forward for decades. Sort of a little bit stop start. You know, there's been growth, but no real boom. Is it accelerating right now? Oh, yeah, <laughs> 100%. Whether that means it's a good investment is another question. But in terms of you know, capacity additions, the demand profile that gets created by policy certainty, you know, we've never really been through a period of such increased clarity really in markets in terms of climate policy you know so we went from trump government no articulated net zero policy by china in the region of 23 percent of global emissions effectively or, or rather only 23 percent signed up to net zero we went all the way from that in a year to biden china japan following china in pretty quick succession south korea 2020 was such an interesting microcosm, in my view, of the capital rotation that we will see extend over time in the sense that although the decline in some of the fossil fuel industries, the decline in those share prices was amplified by COVID, the really telling thing that happened was the the policy certainty that we got during that year saw this massive inflection point where the market basically said, you know, if you give us policy certainty, if you take us out of that Pandora's box into this certainty, we we will set essentially we'll extrapolate extrapolate that growth profile of renewables, you know, much further out in our pricing of that opportunity. We're effectively saying this is a twenty year flight path in terms of growth. That suddenly means you're, you know the whole market is collectively valuing those industries in a completely different way. You know, we started to see that with renewables, you know, in some ways there's a lot more to come. So it's certainly interesting area. With so much growth then, why would it not be a, a strong investment? Purely on valuation ground. So when you're in a growth market like that, you're in an upgrade cycle and you're trying to price those earnings, you know, out into the future. We're still ultimately in a sort of cyclically low point in terms of earnings. So some of the price to earnings basic gauge on valuation would say those industries are you know, you're already pricing a, a large part of that growth. I guess the point I was trying to make there is that, you know, historically, some of these companies would be looked at on a, you know, even like a one to three year view. You say, well, we don't really know where policies go and how do we really factor in that growth trajectory? Well, 2020 was the microcosm of what will happen, which is that you get that enhanced certainty and then therefore the, the valuation follows. Yeah, no, look, really interesting. And yeah, just trying to understand, you know, where those opportunities are, you know, lots of new technologies. And then, of course, as you say, that that regulatory piece is so vital and that will really shift these pieces. You talked about Biden and the shifts that are happening in the US. I'd love to get your view on Europe. 
there's a lot of new regulation coming out of Europe. How do you view the impact of the new disclosure rules and the EU taxonomy? Do you think that'll trickle down to Australia? I guess it's already having an impact on Asia Pacific, right? So China is engaging with the EU on on building out its own taxonomy. For me, taxonomy is really all around providing clarity in terms of you know what's an enabler, what is actually a green industry. Although there will always be a market for ideas in ESG research and identifying, you know, what are the drivers within this particular sector or for this company. There'll never be one view. And that's another topic to move on to, actually, in terms of the differences in ESG rating. Ultimately, that clarity, for me, will just drive capital flow because this work provides that blueprint through which you know capital can then support that transition. It does tackle the thorny question around greenwashing to some extent in the fund structures. Although it does overlap with the idea of determining impacts within sectors, it does overlap with that. I actually see it more as a, as a means to an end in terms of enabling that flow of capital. So it removes the uncertainty and therefore it enables those fund structures to be channeled in the right ways. And building trust is so vital there. You touched on on ESG ratings and the fact that there are so many different frameworks and structures. And if you look at something like credit ratings across the different credit rating companies, they're identical, right, to the uh, decimal point. Why is there such division and, and will that change? Yeah, I mean, it really comes back to the difference between what they're trying to do. I mean, credit rating has a very clear purpose. So what is the probability of default? So you have a very clear output variable, got very clear historical evidence in terms of financial track record, and therefore greater reliability of those statistical inferences, and from which you know you get consistency and comparable outputs across industries. And if you look at ESG, what is a rating? Goes back to some of my remarks earlier in terms of what purpose are we serving with our ESG analysis? That is the fundamental difference here is that the purpose of an ESG rating is multi. There are multiple different end consumers of that ESG rating and it's being used in multiple different ways. Is it to understand how well a firm is managed from an ESG perspective? Is the ESG rating to understand how sustainable an industry is, how ethical it is, whether it's got controversial business practices? Is it based on purely quantitative or qualitative judgments? Some of these things come back to clarifying purpose, which is obviously very useful in in many walks of life. But I don't have an issue personally with there being different results in terms of outcomes. It's more akin to an investment recommendation in the sense of based on a multitude of different factors. If I'm one sector analyst looking at one stock versus like, you know, let's say 10 or 15 other sector analysts, what's my edge in terms of my the predictability of my rating. You know, for that reason, I might say, I think this company is has got this major investment opportunity or major risk. That becomes the single biggest fact or consideration in my research from that stock. If I can get unique inferences from that, you know, that analysis, that's going to give me an edge. Now, that's an investment observation, right? Some ESG ratings, I don't, know what they are or they talk about materiality okay that's good so are you purely focused on materiality or are you making a 
observation on the corporate responsibility of the entity. So I don't have an issue as long as the customer knows what it is they're buying. I just see it as a, as a market for ideas more than anything. Yeah, that's it. You need the, the fine print and the context and to understand the approach of those giving you the rating and, and how they're defining the terms. Yeah, and like the ratings could be used in several different ways. It could be to drive a smart beta or index fund in terms of just using those those ratings as a signal. It could be used as an input in terms of a screen, in terms of my investable universe. I might say, I'm not going to even review in greater detail any company that's rated above a C. It might be used as an input to identify companies that we need to review in much greater detail internally in terms of our own ESG integration. And the list goes on. You know, there's a degree of depth and breadth occurring at the same time. And I think that's what's causing some of the confusion. I mean, I sympathize with some of the companies where they, you know, they're trying to understand, well, what does this mean? You know, we've been downgraded by this company or that company. Yeah. Oh, look, I really appreciate your subjective view of that. I think that's really useful going beyond sort of the definitions, which really mean so little these days. And in that way, you know, I appreciate your financial background and the depth there but also your sort of passion and and the way you're absorbing researching and understanding these sustainability issues and so you know i wonder from your research is there any one piece in particular you're proud of you know that you find the most interesting i don't know maybe you don't maybe it's just work but is there one piece that you get excited talking about or or something you could you could suggest yeah i've definitely more passionate about i guess i think there are certain projects that we're working on right now which i think i can't really talk about in much detail but you know we've already touched on it a little bit and that's taking esg in my view kind of 2d esg purely based on an annual report and maybe some other data and basically taking it into the 3d of esg which is location specific and asset specific risks for me is kind of the vanguard and that's where things are going so that really excites me, but I can't <laughs> I can't talk about that yet too much. But I think when China sword happened in January 2018, you know, it really fired the gun on the urgency around plastic packaging and plastic waste as a as a major issue. And you know, our timing on that more than anything was what you know made it so interesting. So we we published a pretty major thematic report on that called the age of plastic at a tipping point where we looked at the implications of china sword and what that would mean what would the be the implications of a series of policy measures and responses from corporates in, in that whole value chain from and, and it's a complex value chain all the way from petrochemicals companies to you know those packaging companies to your fmcg brands to your retailers to your waste management you know resource recovery companies so you look for me the work we did there and the light hopefully that you know we shedded on that issue and you know how important that was both as a really major major environmental issue that you know wasn't necessarily getting the focus that it deserved in itself then you know clearly became and it has become a major, major investment risk and opportunity. <laughs> I sort of am hesitant to think of these themes as, as sort of trending. You know, they're all important, but I think the fact that they can crack through and become, you know, things that people are debating and discussing is really important. And obviously climate change and renewable energy 
carbon emissions. You know, we've been talking about it for two decades and, and now it's really on everyone's lips. And, and as you said, you know, valuations are up and there's lots of growth. What would you say is sort of the, the next thematic that you think will be both talked about but also investable? I'm particularly focused on remediation. So environmental provisions and cleanup is an interesting area. It does link a little bit back to the energy transition in terms of its its actual, you know, going back to the investment risk in terms of the financial materiality, it does come back to that a bit because although environmental provisions, you know, rehabilitation costs touch many sectors, the reason it's so interesting from a sort of energy transition perspective is just that if that transition accelerates, it takes effectively what is valued as a you know life of asset basis as a non-current liability on your balance sheet so it could be like 30 40 50 years away in terms of potential cleanup obligation it essentially brings it from non-current to impacting me right now in terms of my my pnl because you know we have to close our thermal coal generator and because of that our brown coal mine is no longer economic and we're going to have to close it you know, you talk about stranded assets, but you essentially you've got impact on your asset values as a result of that, you know, the speed of that transition, stranded or closure of assets, which accelerates your remediation liabilities at that precise moment. So, yeah, it, it's particularly interesting from my perspective, but it also links in a bit with another area that I think is is very interesting and sort of upcoming, which is more around chemical toxicity. And it's linked to remediation because the continued or increased focus on the health impacts and environmental impacts of different chemicals generally drives that regulatory change we've talked about in terms of business model exposure risk, right? So essentially what we're seeing and what we look at this is a increasing recognition of you know the impact of different toxicity levels of different chemicals the impact on the environment. And as our understanding of that crystallizes, it's driving those regulations, which drives remediation as well. But of course, also like individual company exposures. You know, we've certainly been looking at things like PFAS, which is sort of like a forever chemical bioaccumulates in the body. So although it's a relatively lower toxicity, it's actually interesting because it bioaccumulates because it doesn't break down as fast as half-life. The impact is more incremental over time. And then, of course, other pesticides where there's you know more obvious sort of global focus right now, whether it's like glyphosate or, or others. It's an endless list, isn't it? There's just so many issues coming to the fore. And I think in, in many ways it comes back to this term, this negative externalities that, that are suddenly becoming internalised. And it was always, you know, right from back in my economics days, it was always a an odd concept and such an interesting terminology i'm not sure if you feel the same way but yeah it was always you know just well hang on well we, they should be internalized right so these are currently not not costs to the company but they clearly should be and maybe it's just the chickens coming home to roost yeah no, no, i completely agree you know whether it's the cost of water or it's the cost of waste or it's the cost of di- different forms of natural capital ultimately if they're not being priced they're not being regulated they're not being internalized. I think carbon is interesting because obviously we are, whether formally or informally, starting to price carbon. And that's where, you know, the more kind of, I guess, neoclassical view of economics or the firm, you know, provides a method to understand that risk. It is interesting. I, I do like some of the reports and studies that 
look at if you were to put a true cost on these different resources based on their impact to the environment, society, it does crystallize the financial impact of that, but it's more complex than that. It is a good framework to understand these risks. Well, that's it. And I think we're at a unique moment now where, uh, you know, we all would sort of didn't say, oh, well, you know, the price of fuel goes up and that changes my quality of life because I can't drive my car. But I think now we have alternatives, right? We, we've never really had the alternatives that we do have now to fossil fuels. So at last we can apply that cost and say, oh, hang on, that's going to incentivize innovation and it's going to fund these new industries. So that's the transition that we know all about. So it's all pieces of the puzzle. And I'm keen to put together the puzzle of yourself and your career. You know, that's something I'm keen to tap into. You've got a, a unique skill set that's really come to the fore in your current role. Were you a finance person wanting to be a greenie or a, or a greenie who got into finance? Maybe that's not the right way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it, for me, the journey started mainly in my master's degree. I mean, I did do business and economics in, in my undergrad. But for me, I was sort of searching for where to take that and not really knowing where I wanted to take my career. And then I did a master's. I mean, it was it was cool business strategy, politics and the environment back then. And now it's really what would just be called business sustainability as a master's program but it covered just really interesting concepts like we've touched on it a bit in terms of externalities but you know the whole body of work around environmental economics and yeah you know how you regulate you do use market instruments do you use command and control instruments and all these things are of course really currently relevant right now in terms of you know, how will governments choose to regulate these things? Yet as part of that, my focus in my master's degree was was actually on SR, what, what was called SRI then, <laughs> Sustainable Responsible Investment. I use that as an opportunity to review all of the different methodologies in the market and being used by, by fund managers as well. So it was essentially a comparison of how construct of financial materiality through an ESG lens was being applied by those different bodies and so it was a, an opportunity to sort of interview all of those different bodies as well my master's sort of focused on that and it was from there i really wanted to move into esg investments so yeah i mean i guess my background my undergrad was sort of business and economics but it was through my master's that really really garnered my interest in the area yeah why do you think it did grab your interest i mean i know personally kept bugging me that we're really not valuing environmental resources in the way that we should. And, you know, I think I then got to know the environmental science class at university and then really interesting that I guess maybe it's changing nowadays, but but these departments are so segregated. And so we sort of had these worldview almost battles, but it was, you know, really great to crack through and be able to share ideas. Was there something in particular that you felt grabbed your attention or any part of the, the academic process? I saw it as a paradigm shift and I still believe that it is, you know, at the time I had, at least in my undergrad had focused on, you know, broader economic theories, the theory of the firm, you know, Milton, Milton Friedman, et cetera. And then through my masters, I had the opportunity to sort of reconcile that with a sort of stakeholder model, mostly espoused by Freeman. So it's a Freeman versus Friedman, the stakeholder model versus sort of shareholder primacy. And I generally have seen that there is a ground through the dialectic. Like, you know, I do think that we're moving into a new paradigm in terms of how we reconcile those, those different forces. And for me, I don't think it is... 100% grounded in the, the stakeholder model or 100% grounded in, in shareholder primacy, or let's call it 
total shareholder return or you know maximizing shareholder value i actually think it in some ways kind of supersedes those theories and it's much more about sustainable value so yeah like for me when i when i think about my masters it was being excited by the idea that there was going to be this paradigm shift in the way we we think about value and that you know we're at the cusp of something where global financial capital could be channeled in a way that would actually you know in my master's mindset would actually fundamentally change the world and so that that for me was an exciting opportunity it, you know i i saw it as both intellectually challenging in terms of what are we actually talking about here in terms of you know stakeholder model shareholder primacy how does this all fit together and secondly just practically you know the challenge and the opportunity around shifting the way we think about value and the way we allocate into the real economy was just a really exciting prospect yeah definitely and i mean you know from that that process when when at that stage there was no concept of esg right it certainly didn't have that term and you've seen that evolution your your career seems to have followed it what advice would you give to finance students today that are interested in these concepts they see impact investment they see esg and sustainability and they think that's that's where i want to go i want i want this intersection do you have any advice about i don't know bringing some real talk to to some of utopian views of it oh look just in terms of a career path in, in esg i think one thing to be aware of which isn't necessarily a bad thing or, or a good thing is just the reality is that you will be a jack of all trades instead of really a master master of one if you had to compare that to a career in equity research or traditional equity research like a sector analyst you will become effectively the master of that sector you know you will learn every single thing about the industry what's happening the different prospects of different you know different industry experts and and so forth some people like that because it's a pursuit of you know ever more granular perfection in terms of your understanding you're looking at a career where there's real excitement in sort of picking up new themes and concepts and ideas and running with them and understanding how that all fits together and so the, the area that you need to focus on as a budding esg analyst is actually more framework thinking it's more systems thinking it's how do these things fit together? How do I build a way of articulating that risk or opportunity or a consistent framework for understanding it? So what makes, I think, a good ESG analyst is quickly understanding the nub of an issue, prioritizing you know, how you absorb that in terms of the key drivers. And then from there, spending more of your time thinking about that framework and building that framework. And I think that's the really interesting area here. More practically speaking, you know, in terms of embarking on a career, I guess I would just say you do need your financial sort of foundations. So, you know, you obviously need to have some of the fundamentals in place in terms of understanding, you know, business and economics and markets and stuff. But if you are going to move into ESG, you are going to want to be specializing in some areas you know you you do need to understand some of the really critical sustainability or sustainable development areas you know and it could be that you want to focus on water it could be that you want to focus on climate change it could be that you want to focus on biodiversity it's not just about staying up on the industry and you know understanding that you know there's a new iteration of taxonomy or uh, there's a new reporting obligation it's actually about understanding the fundamental drivers of those themes and that requires you 
going into a much greater detail in terms of understanding, like you say, whether it's the environmental sciences and so forth or, you know, beyond that. Yeah, look, that's really, really useful advice. And especially, you know, from yourself, I think my younger listeners will appreciate your insights. I'm a hopeless generalist, certainly. And and I think that's what attracts me to my role where I get to research and talk about and discuss and analyze uh, the whole gamut of this space and and maybe that is sort of what you were talking about there and I guess the fact that this sector is evolving it's sort of I don't want to say wild west has sort of negative connotations but that opportunity to make it what you want it to be maybe that's a question for you is there sort of more freedom that as you said if you were a commodities analyst and you were the iron ore guy Like you're just going deeper and deeper and deeper. You're going to know a handful of companies and that's kind of it. When for you, you know, perhaps you can put your hand up in the meeting and say, I really want to go deep on ocean plastics. And they're like, right, go for it. And then you've got this whole new world open up to you and there's no one's mapped out what's meant to happen. So that can be really difficult, but at the same time, it can be, it can be pretty fun. Oh, look, that's what it's all about. And that's kind of where my passion lies. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of that process of discovery, right? (laughs) I often find that, we start with one question that leads to another question and then that leads you to a, another area where you're suddenly finding other major risks and opportunity for businesses. So I certainly enjoy the the discovery, the process of discovery. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, look, let's wrap it up. But before we do, we've talked a lot about what you're sort of passionate about, but I'd love a book recommendation. Is there anything that you know it doesn't sort of have to be about sustainability or finance it could just be what's on your on your bedside table is there anything you can recommend oh <laughs> i think everyone's been reading how to avoid a climate disaster by bill gates but i'm at the risk of <laughs> perpetuating a current kind of cliche i, I would suggest reading it because it's a great way to demystify what we're facing and the different pathways and technologies to get there in terms of climate change so no need to be a snob about it it really is a really clear easy read on what's needed so <laughs> give it a go <laughs> yeah no that's great because i mean you know you spend all day reading and, and it's great to hear that you still got value from it so that that's a really good advice good recommendation phineas thank you there have been some really really great insights there i've learned a lot and you know just that going sort of a little bit deeper than the cliche definitions that we find ourselves sort of rattling off all the time so i really appreciate that depth and uh, and i hope everybody got something from it No, it's great to be on the show, John. Thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Stay in touch. Cheers. Bye.